I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast. So welcome back, everyone. We took the week off last week because of NatCon 3 here in Miami, Florida, which, from my perspective at least, was a roaring and a raucous success. So thank you to those of you who managed to attend the conference in person. Hope you got to meet some of us. And if you didn't, hope you at least enjoyed the content. But we're back in the swing of things. We got a full show for you today, as always. So Emily will kick us off kind of going right from that kind of NatCon theme. So Emily will talk about whether NatCons are improving on the ReformaCons failure from the past decade. Then I'm, I will talk about the, the governor of my state, Ron DeSantis, and his latest foray into the immigration fight pertaining to Martha's Vineyard. Ben will talk about how the FBI is punishing whistleblowers and just the latest with respect to what increasingly looks to me at least like our American Stasi. And then Rachel will take us home with a huge, huge case out of the Fifth Circuit, the court that I clerked on. Just really, really fantastic news out of the Fifth Circuit on the big tech front. But let's have Emily kick us off. Yeah, absolutely. So Yoram Hazoni brought this article to uh, our attention, and I'm glad we're going to start off with it, actually, because I think it's a helpful lens to bring to a lot of these conversations about uh, the the ultimate success. Like, is, is national conservatism poised to improve the everyday lives of your average American? And it, this is an op-ed from Ross Douthat of the New York Times called Can Republicans Tax the Rich? Published this week. It's, it's really a meditation on the National Conservatism Project as it stands post-NatCon 3 um, right now in September 2022 and, and asking that very question, can Republicans tax the rich? And Ross begins the article by thinking about other iterations of attempts to reform the conservative project in the last 20, 30 years. So there's the wave of compassionate conservatism and Bushism in the aughts. And then you move to the Reformacon movement, which Ross Douthat was absolutely a part of. Um, and you then sort of make these questions, you know, can a new coalition of conservative voices forge a, a Republican agenda um, that is using uh, government and is directing the culture in ways that are healthier than the sort of fusionist pro-business uh you when you if you look at the fusionism sort of emphasis emphasis on business in ways that have been uh basically impossible impossible because of the lock that big business has had on the republican party historically and by the way i don't think any of us would deny that that's for some good reason it is good to be pro markets and to be pro entrepreneurship and to be pro um, private sector directing uh, the the sort of uh, flow of our culture. Absolutely no question about it. Um, I don't think any of us, as I said, I don't think any of us would deny that, uh, but our markets exist for our people. They exist for the flourishing of our people. Our people don't exist to be cogs in the free market machine in some sort of Randian sense. Um, the, there have to be, obviously, there, there has to be, as Yoram says, and I, I've, have re I've referenced this on two different podcasts today, we have privatized virtue. Um, we have to have a consensus public virtue. Um, and I think national conservatism is really poised to 
make that case. The question then, and, and Ross is sort of having gone through the Reformicon uh, phase of the conservative movement, skeptical that this can translate into policies. He notes, you know, what's come out of Tom Cotton's office. I would add to that in Marco Rubio's office, even Mitt Romney's office with the, the child benefit that I'm not sure I agree with, but uh, that is, is something that has, has come out of these conversations with folks at you know, the social capital uh, project and uh, you know, the ethics and public policy center, even heritage now, um, all of these conversations you're seeing start to be transformed into legislation in certain offices on the Hill. And I think that's wonderful. Um, but the, the question remains, can Republicans tax the rich? And that's a question that's sort of a stand in for broader questions. Can Republicans meaningfully eat away at big businesses power uh, with legislation. And I think that's a great place to start the discussion just because what separates, in my opinion, this moment from the moment of compassionate conservatism and the moment of the reformicons is one extremely important thing. Republicans no longer want the support of big business, at least many of them don't because uh, there's this new uh, there's this new recognition, especially post 2020, that the culture is being absolutely wrecked. Some of it is cynical. Republicans can't get the support of big business anymore because they're not socially liberal and it's too much of a risk. These companies believe to back people that are opposed to ESG and whatever else. Um, but the the ties between the Republican Party and the, look at the Chamber of Commerce. They're considering investigating the Chamber of Commerce, a Republican administration. Uh, that's Ryan Grimm's reporting is considering actually investigating the Chamber of Commerce if they win the House. Um, so, so these ties have really been severed in new ways that are not at all seen um, in these previous sort of iterations of conservatism. I think we all share a sense of skepticism and pessimism just because we've seen what happens with the Republican Party <laughs> time and again. Uh, but with that, I do think that's a meaningful distinction between the other moments. And so I'll toss it open to the group. So, you know, I, I think back to this line that Chris Demuth had at NatCon 2. Uh, I think he was giving like his like opening keynote plenary, whatever we call that speech. And he said that NatCons are conservatives mugged by reality. I mean, you maybe could say that NAC, NatCons are also like reformacons, like mugged by a sense of what time it is. Um, because I, I can't remember who exactly said this. I, I, I'm having a hard time remembering, but... Someone recently, within the past year or so, said to me that, you know, he, this person was like, Josh, isn't like the whole NACON thing basically what the Reformicons were doing, but like with like, you know, panache and like with like rhetoric and with like force and with like an understanding and, and like, frankly, just a little more pugnacity and kind of attitude. Um, and I, I think that's right to an extent. Emily's point about, about big business is very well taken. But if you look back, there's a, there was this long New York Times article on the old Reformicons. I think it was from like 2013 or 14. Uh, I, Rachel, I guarantee, knows what I'm talking about. There was like this big photo. It's like Ramesh Panuru, Rehan Salam, Yuval Levin. It's the worst and, political photo ever taken. I'm not guns. sure what staffer let them do that. <laughs> But that thing goes down in history as like the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Wait, where is it? Is, is it in the AEI office? Is that where they say it's I think or? so. And they're all like posed in the in the founding fathers 
like yeah, positions, like exactly. they're drafting a constitution or something. Just no, no. Yeah, no, it's a bad photo. And like, uh, unfortunately, though, like that kind of like out of touch sentiment, I think was typical of the Reformicons. And if you look at the photo and you look at the people, some of the folks there, um, like I, I think like Jimmy Pethokoukis was in that photo, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I mean, that guy, I, I mean, I can't remember the last time I, I read something from him. I mean, he's kind of like an off the deep end, never Trumper these days. I, th- I saw him publicly praising AEI for hosting Liz Cheney for the Constitution Day event. So some of the people from that movement have like never, frankly, been less relevant. But I, but I think if you look at kind of the substance of what some folks in particular, like Ross Duthat, Yuval Levin, what some of them were saying a bit, a little bit more of like kind of like a, a a national cohesive kind of two cheers for capitalism, kind of Irving Crystal inspired approach to political economy, not this kind of three cheers, market fundamentalism, you know, uh, free trade absolutism stuff. Yeah, there, a, a, lot, a lot of the substantive themes are very similar, are very similar. But even outside of the realm of political economy, I, you know, I never got the sense that the reformicons were as gung ho about the culture wars and the civilizational wars that I think the natcons are. I mean, I think I, I think us here in this podcast, you know, if there's what there's one late motif this podcast besides just the rhetoric of knowing what time it is, it is it is like now is the time, and the imperative is to fight the culture war unabashedly with the aim of victory, not with offering kind of a a, a milk toast controlled opposition version of of the right of center response, but a full throttle. Kind of you know jo christian christian inspired vision of of what human sexuality abortion the nation state all these things are so we are we i think unapologetic about the culture wars in a way that the reformicons were not but but uh, emily i think your point about uh, about big business is also very well taken so i want to affirmatively at least on behalf of myself reject the reformicon mantle i i don't have strong uh, uh, i don't have favorable opinions of the reformicon project because what it actually was in my mind was just technocrats right at the end of the day like the reformicon movement failed because it wasn't really speaking to sort of the broad um perils i think that were sort of facing society it was just this like these technocratic uh very bureaucratic solutions to real problems um but instead of addressing the broad forces that were you know assess or inflicting people beyond their control they were like let's just micromanage your life in a different way than the democrats want to do it and i think that's really what the natcon movement has to avoid and i think we're poised to do it because i think we're engaged in the culture war which tends to require a little bit more of a broader solution but i, I don't you know we have to speak on behalf of the nation's natural majority which includes parents which includes blue collar workers which includes um you know school kids which includes all these people and that i think hopefully pushes us out of the of the vein of, of technocracy. I think some great examples of this um, are what Riley Moore is doing in West Virginia. I know he spoke at, at NatCon 3, and I actually was just talking with him this morning, but just simply saying things like, yeah, to financial companies, like if you um, are engaged in ESG, you can't do business with the state of West Virginia because that threatens our jobs and we are here to protect the jobs of our state. Like that stuff in, in broad strokes, it has to animate the NatCon movement. Um, so I know we're slightly short on time and I want to give Ben a chance to talk, but no reformicon movement for us. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be really brief. I think, um, the question isn't necessarily like, can we tax the rich so-called, even though I think that's sort of a straw man description of, you know, what the policy set is here, but it's how could we not, how can you not starve a beast that is trying to wipe you and everything you value off the face of the earth effectively? Uh, so I think that the conditions on the ground have changed. Consequently, our posture, the tactics we'd embrace, and the policies as well have shifted along with it. You know, Rachel has talked before about kind of reprioritizing 
uh, reorienting. And I think that's exactly what all of us in one way or another is sort of in our different lands and in some ways overlapping have advocated. And I think if you look to the NatCon statement of principles, it's consistent with it. On my own account, you know, I for a long time would have described myself as a free marketeer. And I think I still probably am if you asked me, you know, kind of the basic questions about economics. But one of the things I would say is we've had nothing close to a free market. Second of all, no NatCon, I don't think, would be against draining the administrative state. And killing the administrative state is perfectly consistent with both you know, devotion to having a more efficient and flourishing sort of economy and allowing people to pursue the good as they see it. But at the same time, where the government should be active is in vigorously pursuing a vision that is consistent with that Judeo-Christian founding father backed one on which the country was based. And so it ought to be vigorous in very specific areas and certainly not be used as a tool or working hand in hand with a private sector that is actively trying to kill those very principles. So I think that we can retain, you know, our understanding of basic economics, but also understand that there are more foundational fundamental things. And if you don't have those foundational fundamental things, by the way, you're not going to have a free market, let alone a free society at all. Uh, so, okay, so let's transition. So um, good chat, everyone. So let's move on to kind of like what's happening more like the day-to-day, -day, but tangible policy, practical news cycle, I guess. So uh, what one big story from the past week, and I guess the news broke roughly a week ago from the time that we're recording this, was um, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, apparently took roughly 48, or maybe it's not roughly, I think it's, I think it's exactly actually 48, Venezuelan migrants, and he basically shipped them from San Antonio, Texas. They they landed in Florida to kind of give kind of the legal hook to Florida having jurisdiction, and then shipped them off to that great bastion of Tony Afit, out of touch Upper West Side limousine liberalism, of course, that being the island of Martha's Vineyard. And the migrants were on Martha's Vineyard for roughly 36 hours, I, I think uh, less than two full days. They apparently were not particularly welcome there. I, I would encourage the, list, uh, the, the listeners and viewers of the podcast to check out a great piece that Paul DeQuinoy wrote for me at Newsweek, where he kind of looks onto kind of the the public fora for Martha's Vineyard residents, and the the nimbyism is quite real, I guess you might say. Apparently, they needed 125 National Guardsmen to transport these 48 Venezuelan illegal alien migrants across the channel from Martha's Vineyard to, to Cape Cod. So they, they needed a, two, two and a half times the number of National Guardsmen just to transport these aliens from there. There's apparently all sorts of investigations, and now there are, there's the beginnings of what we of what we see as a lawsuit by, on behalf of kind of leftist nonprofits, on behalf of the illegal aliens who are making what appeared to me, based on what I've read, to be all sorts of kind of false, slanderous, and malicious claims about about how they were allegedly falsely lured and induced. I, I find that extraordinarily hard, perhaps borderline impossible to believe. So the, the news cycle has really, really focused on this. And I guess I have a few things to say about that. One is it's interesting to me that the news cycle has focused so much more on this particular episode with Governor DeSantis than they have on Governor Abbott, who has been doing something fairly similar on a much larger, albeit less visible scale for months and months and months. I mean, I, I was on TV talking about this maybe like four or five months ago. I mean, Greg, Greg Abbott has been busing hundreds and hundreds of migrants to Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York City, kind of these, um, you know, infamous kind of big blue liberal urban enclaves. So 
when DeSantis does it on a, on a plane, not a bus, to Martha's Vineyard at kind of a fraction of the scale, why does it generate so so much more headlines? And there are two obvious things that come to mind. Uh, perhaps the most obvious is that I think the left is just frankly scared of Ron DeSantis in a way that they are not necessarily scared of Greg Abbott or perhaps any other Republican for that matter. Um, I'm pretty biased because I'm a Floridian and uh, I've gotten to know the governor a little bit, but I, I do think very highly of him. And it seems to me like the moment is is right for him. So I think the left senses that and they are quite fearful of him in return. The other thing, obviously, is that Martha's Vineyard, you know, is kind of just such a beautiful, it's just a beautiful kind of symbolic kind of sucker punch to the liberal psyche, if you will, right? I mean, Barack Obama, has what is uh, reported to be a 10-bedroom house there. You know, Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm is, is known to go there. Um, uh, all sorts of, of various other very wealthy kind of liberal elites there. So why did DeSantis do this? Well, he, he I mean, he obviously did this to kind of give these, you know, holier-than-thou, sanctimonious, pro-sanctuary jurisdictions a taste of what Eagle Pass, Texas, Del Rio, Texas, Yuma, Arizona are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I don't think that this was DeSantis or even Greg Abbott for the matter. This is not their first choice. Like in an ideal world, this is not what you do when it comes to immigration policy. In an ideal world, the federal government does its damn job. But in a world where the federal government is just completely letting down its guard, when we have a record high 2 million plus border crossings in, in this fiscal year alone, you know, I go back to the famous uh, concurrence slash dissent of Justice Scalia in Arizona versus United States from 2012, where he basically said, if the federal government is not doing its job when it comes to securing the border, then the states absolutely can, should, and must step up to do so. So I view this as very much being in line with that. I, I have some other things to add about this. Maybe I'll come back to, to closing thoughts there because I want to give you guys a chance to weigh in here. I just want to pour one out for the poor, impoverished citizens of Martha's Vineyard. I think they're really, really just can't believe they had to go through this. But, you know, honestly, it may go down in history as one of the best political stunts of all time, because a stunt is really only worth the symbolism it represents and the reactions it provokes. And the reactions have just been so incredible uh, to this. And I think that's why, you know, sending things, sending these migrants to Martha's Vineyard, just sort of the epicenter of of blue liberalism, the epicenter of, of the yard signs that say hate has no home here, right? And that like all are welcome. And then within 24 hours, they'd summoned 125 National Guard troops and shipped the migrants to a military base, like within 24 hours. And I just, it's just, the hypocrisy is just stunning. And I got into this exchange on Twitter with some I don't know, blue check person I'd never heard of that works, I think, in the film industry who was like, DeSantis is treating human beings like chattel. And it's like, lady, chattel? Like, do you understand that the chattel is the cartels, right, who are shipping people across the borders, tagging them with serial numbers, raping the women and selling them into indentured servitude because our border policies are their business model. It's just, I think the one real stunning thing was the lack of awareness in the country of how bad it is at the border. And I think the coda, the beautiful coda of all of this to me was Chuck Todd, uh, the host of Meet the Press being like, they sh they sh DeSantis shipped into an island without infrastructure. And it's like Martha's Vineyard hosts presidents and the entire White House press corps on a routine basis, but yet they don't have the infrastructure for 48 migrants. It was just incredible, just incredible work. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> 
the the other thing the media botched is saying that migrants were tricked, which is really indicative, I think, of a condescension that uh, people have towards migrants as though they're just stupid. It's it's like borderline racist, I think, in a lot of cases. It's just like st- these, these stupid people who just need, they're helpless. They just need uh, the rich people to, to show them the way. Um, and honestly, there's really not a lot of good evidence so far that anybody was tricked or misled which I was following very closely and have been following very closely this week because I do think, I I actually do very much think that if there's intentional trickery to uh, get people on an airplane and ship them across the country, it's a problem. Now, it's not nearly a problem as the left's disinterest in solving the actual problem of cartel human trafficking uh, that comes into our country. These are problems on vastly different scales. Um, But I do think it's a problem. And yet the media all week repeated these weird stories about a woman named Perla and ignored reporting from people like Telemundo, a Telemundo correspondent who went on MSNBC and said, the migrants I'm talking to are thanking Ron DeSantis. Like It's completely night and day. There's a, one account quoted someone saying that he knew he was going to the island and he was happy to be there. Um, and you heard all of the emphasis on the people who said they talked to a woman named Perla and that there were uh, really misleading brochures. Well, we saw copies of the brochures. They appeared to just be information about social services offered in Massachusetts. We've heard that migrants say they were promised housing, um, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no way to know whether that was a translation error. All of the, de- all of the lawyers representing them are are like clearly left-leaning partisans. Um, so it, it's just it, like there the whole thing has been such a mess and to watch the virtue signalers of Martha's Vineyard, who by the way, declaring themselves a sanctuary jurisdiction, just like DC and New York contribute to this problem by doing that. Because you let people sort of just exist in the shadows, you give people incentives to line cartels' pockets and making these desperate, treacherous journeys to watch them uh, where they have all of the social capital in the world, unlike Brownsville and Del Rio and Eagle Pass. Of course, Martha, Martha's Vineyard is going to be welcoming for their 24 hours. They have social capital. They have civic groups. They have tightly knit families. They have a ton of money. Um, so to watch them only tolerate that for 24 hours is just completely disgusting. Well, let me just say the best headline to emerge from this comes from CNN. And it's a quote here. They enriched us. Migrants' 44-hour visit leaves indelible mark on Martha's Vineyard. I don't think there is a better headline in this entire saga. Um, I will say also, you know, the notion of like, this is a stunt. Obviously, this is a masterful tactic that highlights the hypocrisy of sanctuary jurisdictions. And it also meets some justice to those jurisdictions when they actually have to live with the consequences of their actions. But the reality is it's not only the border towns that are overrun as a consequence of the policies that people in Martha's Vineyard vote for. They're also unsuspecting, hapless jurisdictions throughout this country that face resettled refugees being dropped completely unbeknownst to their citizens and without any uh, input from those citizens in their towns. And they have to assimilate oftentimes completely alien populations and deal with all the consequences of it. When the federal government does it, it's okay. But when Ron DeSantis does it, it's not okay. Is that is that what we're supposed to expect from this? And then the last thing I'll, I'll I'll say is, you know, these lawsuits are frivolous. Although I don't know, you know, what judge they end up coming in front of. But I will say this: if the illegal aliens or the groups representing them are found to have standing in these cases, then what about the American citizens who have to deal with the harms and the damages associated 
with a sovereignty that is non-existent now. If illegal aliens have standing, then Americans have to have standing in court too. Let me just briefly say, and then we'll throw it right back to you, Ben. So I, I will admit to the fact in this podcast that I was actually in Martha's Vineyard for Labor Day weekend. I have family in the Boston area, and my uncle and aunt have a nice house there. It was only, only my second time there. And they're on one side of the island. I actually got lunch uh, one day with Alan Dershowitz, who I published a lot in Newsweek, and he's on the opposite side of the island. So I took this like 30-minute Uber ride right across Martha's Vineyard. There was a lot of empty property there. There was a lot of just like wooded, fielded terrain. They were not short for real estate to house these people. But I just want to kind of get that from firsthand experience. But Ben, let's toss right back to you to talk about the FBI. Sure. I'm not sure what the transition is here, uh, except the further corruption of our national security apparatus in this case, just as it's been corrupted when it comes to the sovereignty of our borders. So I want to raise a contrast that I've been thinking about in recent days around some revelations in the case of Igor Danchenko, potentially the last case that special counsel John Durham will be pursuing, uh, as well as the case of an FBI whistleblower. So for those who don't recall, Igor Danchenko was the key researcher behind the key document, behind the key effort to undermine candidate Trump and then destabilize and destroy President Trump. So he was the key source behind the Steele dossier that was central to the charge of Russian collusion. And it appears that he lied. He's been charged with five counts of lying to the FBI around what he put forth in that document, including fabricating sources and what the sources said, including the most lurid and sensational claims within that document, as well as covering up the fact that it was a Clinton crony who was responsible for feeding him some of that information. And as we know, that Steele dossier, despite the fact that Robert Mueller skated over it very pointedly, was critical to the entire case, supposed case, of Trump-Russian collusion. So there have been several revelations in this case that are pretty remarkable lately, and I wanted to, to flag a few of them. The first is that Denchenko himself, while he was working at the Brookings Institution back around 2008 through 2010, actually came under FBI counterintelligence scrutiny because it turned out that he had approached a couple of employees talking to them about potentially obtaining national security related information and then essentially offering to potentially broker a deal to obtain that information from one person who was likely to serve in an Obama administration and sell that information to willing parties. When the FBI started to look into him, they found out that he had ties to Russian intelligence, that he might have wanted to serve in a Russian embassy as well. And then somehow in 2010, they closed the case because they thought that Danchenko had left the country. He actually had not. So this is a person who was under FBI counterintelligence scrutiny, potentially for being a Russian agent by implication of these revelations in this Durham filing. Uh, and it also turns out he was potentially going to try to broker information and this was a person who the FBI relied upon ultimately to foist a fraud in the FISA court, spy on the Trump campaign. And you know the myriad ways that this metastasized over time, lie built upon lie based on this one individual, Danchenko. But even more breathtaking is the fact that we learned that even after the FBI knew Danchenko was lying to them about key aspects of this key document, it put him on the payroll. It made him a paid informant from March 2017 to October 2020. So essentially from the pendency of the time when, if you look back in March 2017, Comey announced to Congress it was investigating Trump for Russian collusion, as well as the fact that Devin Nunes just a couple of days later revealed that he had found that the Trump transition team had been spied upon. So what did they do? Knowing that this liar spoon 
feeding Russian disinformation on behalf of the Clinton campaign uh, and that he might be a Russian agent himself or had ties to them, what does the FBI do? It goes out and pays him for two reasons. One, to effectively take him off the grid to silence and disappear him in effect so that you couldn't FOIA any records about him or see his name released in any documentation around oversight of Russiagate. But then second of all, to further conceal what the FBI knew about this individual and how shoddy the basis for Russiagate was. Okay, so hold Denchenko to the side. The FBI pays this guy for silence and to protect itself. Recently this week, we found out from Miranda Devine in the New York Post that a special agent for the FBI, who's been a whistleblower, who's been disclosing some of these allegations around the hyper-politicization and weaponization of the FBI and DOJ against wrong thinkers in this country around Gen 6 and adjacent events as well, was actually suspended from the FBI, had his badge taken away, had his weapon taken away, lost a job and was escorted from his office. This whistleblower was responsible for several major allegations, including claiming that he saw in his work that the FBI was effectively manipulating the numbers and cooking the books to inflate the threat of domestic violent extremism, of course, from conservatives, which they claim are domestic violent extremists, as well as prioritizing these Gen 6 cases over child sexual abuse and trafficking cases, and that he claimed that essentially as a conscientious objector, he did not want to pursue some of the raids associated with Gen 6 that his office was asking him to do because they were essentially trumped up cases in his view and that they were being overzealously pursued. So as a consequence of all this, he faced reprisals from his office, including threats to his job, and then ultimately has now been suspended. So what is the takeaway here? An FBI whistleblower, a 12-year veteran there, a patriot, does his patriotic duty and calls out malfeasance within the FBI. He gets punished for it. Igor Denchenko, a Russian disinformationista, gets paid by the FBI and rewarded for it. Now, we'll see if ultimately he does face some form of justice in this Durham case, although I'm not at all sanguine about it. It looks like he may be able to put forth the same arguments Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman did and get off as well. We do not know what is going to happen to this special agent, Steve Friend. He's put forth the whistleblower complaint to, and you'll remember this name, DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz. But I think this is a perfect illustration of the total rot, corruption, and disrepair with their national security apparatus. And it's directly linked to the fact that Russiagate was never prosecuted the way it should have been. That's how we go from a Russiagate and a Denchenko getting paid to an FBI special agent doing his patriotic duty and getting punished for it. So I'm open to your thoughts on this. I think these are remarkable stories and a remarkable contrast. So, Ben, thanks for laying that out in such specific detail, because I think my concern about these stories more broadly is that the depth of corruption that is being exposed in the Russiagate conspiracy, which led, you know, the Department of Justice to spy on a presidential campaign, you know, just knocking down uh, norms left and right, it is never really going to be fully understood. You know, it's not being fully reported on. You know, you have outlets covering it, but it's not being picked up with the same fervor uh, in the mainstream media that it would if it was any other president, right? If it was any other story, this is rot. It is it is stinking corrupt rot. And it, you know, you have to hope that Republicans do oversight in a way that makes this tangible to people because it is a deep, deep weaponization of the institutions, the likes of which we've never seen before. So, you know, I think it's, very important for people to tell these stories in a way people can understand because there's got to be some reforms made. I was just people need to go to jail. I was just going to say what Rachel uh, alluded to that if there's a Republican House, uh, if not Senate, 
uh, next year, starting in January, this is going to be very, very, very fertile ground. And as much, um, you know, a lot of these investigations and revelations have come uh, after the Trump presidency. And so to the extent that there can be real uh, action in terms of like an investigation turning up criminal behavior or whatever else it is, that that could actually be pretty imminent um, when if there is a new Congress. So, I mean, I guess the only thing that I'll add, and Ben, thank you as well. That was extraordinarily helpful. I mean, I know that you're writing for this uh, on Newsweek as well, which is excellent. I, I guess the only thing that I have to add is I, I just the day that we're, that we're um, the day before that we're recording this, um, and one, one of the newsletters, I can't remember which, I was reading about a brief that a series of Republican attorneys general is filing. I, I, I presume it would be to the 11th Circuit, which is the appellate court above uh, Florida, which is where Mar-a-Lago is. And it's pertaining, obviously, to this special master dispute. Um, you know, does the government face some sort of like um, uh, horrific uh, danger or burden because uh, they can review the materials immediately? And uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, I believe, is kind of the source of this brief of all these various attorneys general, uh, as as Ken Paxton typically is when it comes to kind of the meaty stuff um, from on behalf of Red State America. So thanks, as always, to General Paxton for the fine work that his office does. But, you know, Ashley Moody, the attorney general of Florida, I think, signed on to that brief and a bunch of other AGs did. OK, why is that brief important? Well, the brief is important because a number of fairly high profile Republican AGs basically put in formal legal writing in, in an 11th Circuit. Again, I believe uh, a formal court filing. They basically said you judges should take with a serious grain of salt, <laughs> should take with a serious grain of salt everything that the that the other side, that the DOJ, that the FBI is telling you because of X, Y, Z. And the fact that these Republican AGs put this into formal court writing got a lot of blowback from what I can tell. I mean, maybe not a lot, but, but it got blowback from kind of, you know, the, the normal folks, right? I mean, kind of, you know, the Brookings Institute, the Lawfare blog, the kind of like leftist center legal legals who pay attention to this stuff were kind of like totally up in arms. I mean, how could these Republican AGs cast aspersions like this uh, against the FBI? Well, I can tell you exactly how Republican attorneys general can cast aspersions and frankly doubt the sincerity and integrity of the FBI because it is crap like this. It is stuff exactly like this that Ben just laid out for us. So um, I, I just wanted to make that point. And, you know, I would encourage listeners and viewers to go ahead and uh, check out that court filing, which I only had the chance to skin myself, but it's it's pretty good from what I can tell. But um, why don't we go on to our to our final segment here? So, Rachel, why don't you take us home? Yeah, so I want to talk uh, briefly about a decision that just came out of the Fifth Circuit about going back to Texas. Uh, Texas's social media law HB twenty, and I think we've talked about this at least once before on this podcast. But this was the social media law passed out of Texas that basically said, look. The platforms are common carriers and they cannot discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. Not that they can't discriminate on against content at all, right? They can the, the law specifically delineates they can remove illegal content, they can remove content, you know, suggesting violence and a whole host of categories, but it basically says on viewpoint, yeah, you can't do it. Uh, this was challenged immediately by the big tech platforms through their trade associations, NetChoice um, and the Commuter, Com Computer Communications Industry Association. Um, it was considered by, uh, and the shadow docket by Supreme Court, um, and then the Fifth Circuit just released its uh, opinion, which is truly uh, maybe the, the biggest win, I think, that we've had before the courts on this issue, um, written by Judge Andy Oldham, who is a great American, basically uh, upheld the Texas law, and in doing so, 
he really sort of went after the canards put forward by the big tech industry that have sort of shaped this debate for the last like 10, 15 years. Um, he went after this idea that these this is simply about speech, right? That the platform censorship decisions are just their speech. And he basically said, no, this isn't about speech. This is about their conduct. Um, and he separated the speech and conduct issue. And he said, look, no, you don't have any right to censor. I think his exact line was, um, today, that I'm quoting from the opinion now, today we reject the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say, end quote. I mean, hallelujah, right? I could weep because this is something that we've been waiting for for a long time. But the second thing he did, which I thought was particularly uh, important, is that you know, for a long time, these big tech companies have had it really easy in Washington and in the courts. It, they've been sort of stocked by tech exceptionalists. You know, they've been the courts have just been buying this argument that, yeah, it's their First Amendment right to do whatever they want. Uh, Judge Oldham really went against that, too. And he said, no, he, he pierced their specious argument that if we regulate the Internet in any possible way, if we control what these big tech platforms do, the Internet will fall apart and will be subsumed by uh, troll content about Nazis and terrorists. And Oldham basically just very impatiently dismissed that and said, look, this is complete hyperbole. It's hypothetical. This law hasn't even been enforced. Uh, if you want to bring a claim after the law has been enforced and there's been actual harm, you can do that. But right now, you're com it's complete speculation. And so he really did, I think, um, really kick, uh, kick the big tech companies where it hurts. And I do think he set up uh, potential consideration for the Supreme Court, because now you have an open circuit split between the 11th and the Fifth Circuit. Josh can, of course, talk more about that. Um, but it may be the case that this we, we finally see the Supreme Court act on this. Now, that could go either way. Uh, but I do think we're actually making progress. I will say it would have been nice for Congress to do something before this. But, you know, once again, the states are leading the way here. The states are being the tail that wags the dog. And you love to see it. Um, so if you haven't checked out this opinion, it is 131 pages, I think, but it's it's worth the read. <laughs> yeah, it really is worth the read. So this opinion dropped last Friday. I was actually on a plane when it dropped. I was on the way out to California to give a uh, presentation at the Claremont Institute's Constitution Day event. My my talk happened to be about, about this topic, about kind of big tech and kind of the collapse, the public-private distinction, common carrier, antitrust, all this stuff. So the timing really couldn't have been better. The opinions, are, it is a true tour de force. I mean, like if you are even like remotely interested in these topics, I I, I cannot recommend strongly enough. The case is called Net Choice versus Paxton. I I, th I think Andy's majority opinion is like 89, 90 pages. Um, and there's a brief concurring opinion from uh, Edith H. Jones, one of the greatest living Americans herself, of course. Um, but this opinion is just, it's just top notch. I mean, I cannot I emphasize that enough. Rachel is, is correct to highlight um, Judge Oldham's kind of top line point, which he rhetorically emphasizes again and again and again throughout this, that censorship and speech are not the same thing. There's really kind of like a more like intellectually kind of in the weeds, deep dive on, on the common law background of the of the doctrine of common carriage. He has a, he has a, a, a case citation from the 1400s, which is kind of, I guess, one of like the earliest places that you can find the, this doctrine emerging in English common law. He talks about its development in the United States, first in the context of railroads in the 19th century, subsequently to telephones and things of that nature there. So, uh, you know, it really is, I think, confirmation of a lot of uh, what, you know, what I've been saying when, and what some others have been saying for a while now, which is 
from my perspective, common carriage is probably where this train ultimately comes to a stop. I mean, I think that is a, Clarence Thomas certainly kind of was intimating that he was very much hinting at that strongly in his concurrence in the Biden versus Knight First Amendment case uh, from April 2021, which the longtime viewers of this podcast will remember. We did a special episode on that a very concurring opinion at that time. And, you know, this is kind of Judge Olden basically kind of uh, putting his rubber stamp on much of what Clarence Thomas was kind of half saying, but half kind of just kind of more, uh, you know, like waving his hands at it. And I, it really, if you kind of look back, I think CT was kind of basically trying to get the lower courts to more decisively do exactly what Judge Olden did here. So it's really just a fantastic opinion. Um, uh, Andy Andy Oldham is, is just a fantastic judge. I, I've actually known him for years, going back to when he was uh, general counsel for uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott back when I was at U Chicago FedSoc. We used to bring in Andy every year to kind of uh, give a more Texas themed speech. So it's great to see him doing great work on that court. Um, I think he's one of the uh, the best Trump nominees alongside my former boss, of course, Jim Ho, who who's a fantastic judge as well. And and funny enough, Jim was actually honored at the Claremont event that I was flying out to. So it was a very kind of Fifth Circuit full weekend for me. Um, and, you know, I want to give the, uh, Emily and Ben a chance to weigh in here. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot more to be said here. So maybe we'll come back to this in final thoughts as well. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and be really brief. Uh, one of the things that I found in the opinion that was particularly compelling, uh, in, and I'm in part kind of partially disposed to it because I think alluding back, referencing Section 230 is important when it comes to any of these issues and the purpose, the, the letter and spirit of it. Uh, in one argument within the majority opinion, it reads, in some Section 230 reflects Congress's judgment that the platforms are not acting as speakers or publishers when they host user-submitted content. While a statute may not abrogate constitutional rights, Congress's factual judgment about the role of online platforms counsels against finding that the platforms publish and hence speak the content that other users post. And that's particularly true here because the platforms have long relied on and vigorously defended that judgment only to make a stark about face for this litigation. Section 230 thus reinforces our conclusion that the platform censorship is not protected speech under the First Amendment. I think it's an important punchline, and I'll just raise one other punchline preceding the one that Rachel raised about you know, that we reject the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor. Before that, the opinion reads, the implications of the platforms' arguments are staggering. On the platforms' view, email providers, mobile phone companies, and banks could cancel the accounts of anyone who sends an email, makes a phone call, or spends money in support of a disfavored political party, candidate, or business. I actually think that is what is at stake here, and I think that is the world that the other side of this argument wants. I think they want to be able to completely cancel anyone who does not comport their viewpoints with the prevailing orthodoxy of our betters of the commanding heights of society. So this is an essential case in pushing back on this much broader effort of essentially the regime versus its foes and the regime's attempt to crush those foes, starting with crushing their speech and then every other liberty. So if I could just, I'll, make, I'll make this my final Whoa. thought. Oh, sorry. I cut Emily off. She's, okay, you first. She's so rude. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, Rachel. Um, no, I, all I was going to say is that it's it's very, very interesting um, to see the changes actually start to snowball 
Um, and, and to see all of these, these pressures start to mount, uh, because obviously we all know tech is, is massively powerful in, in Washington, um, but that's not really enough anymore. And we don't know whether the opposition to it's going to be enough if we can really reorganize this, the economy of surveillance capitalism in a helpful way. Uh, but these are very, very optimistic signs that uh, a better economy could be on the horizon. I guess that was worth letting you speak. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so yeah. So in, if we go to final thoughts, this will be mine. Cause I'm really glad Ben flagged that part of the opinion, because I do think that that is exactly what is at stake when we talk about, you know, people being cut off from the guts of capitalism and these companies being like, oh, it's just speech. We're seeing this even just recently. We've been seeing this for the last year, but just recently PayPal, who has been along. Uh, has had a year-long partnership with the Anti-Defamation League is now blocking users over their political ideology. I think they just kicked off this, um, it was actually a, a gay group that was against transing the kids essentially, <laughs> right? They were on PayPal and PayPal was like, yeah, no, you can't even be here because you know that's hate speech. So we are seeing that. And so to take it full circle back to the first segment, when we talk about what the NATCOM project is about, and I think the danger of it falling into sort of Reformicon technocracy. This is what I, this is the NatCom project, right? Protecting the nation, protecting the broad confines of being able to participate, you know, in, in, for, in the free market, in American society. And you'll see people who say, well, that's imposing your beliefs on the market. No, it's really not. It's protecting the space in which a citizenry can coexist with one another. And that has to be the first place that we start. And I, you know, would shy away from, falling into, you know, when we talk about policy, you know, these, these narrow pitfalls and instead focus uh, from a broad perspective. And this is what I try to talk about in my NatCon speech um, about kind of how we protect the country and our policy has to start and end there. Um, so, and this, this is a perfect example, controlling the big tech companies that are trying to control the society in which they exist. We rule it. They don't rule us. You know, I applaud the Fifth Circuit. And honestly, I hope it, I hope it sustains, you know, I think we may see a move to overturn the Supreme Court, but, you know, we're just getting started. So I'm happy to see, to see this. And I do think protecting the marketplace with decisions like this is an important NatCon agenda item. Um, That's my so, final thought. Well, well, fortunately for you, Rachel, I think we actually have time for additional final thoughts if you want to chime <laughs> in as well, but. Um, uh, no, I, I, we're, I, we're cutting her off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, I guess I will kick off the formal final thoughts segment. We will see if Rachel wants to chime in again or not. But I will continue basically right where Rachel left off here. So I, I want to talk just a little more about the doctrine of common carrier and like what it actually is when we're talking about this. Um, that, that because it's it's obviously quite relevant here. So the idea and kind of this very early 1400s case citation that Andy cites in this Net Choice versus Paxton opinion. When it first developed in, in England, we we're talking about uh, people who are operating ferries, people who are operating orbs. And the idea is that when you when you are a private business owner, but you operate a business that to kind of borrow the rhetoric of the uh, 17th century English common lawyers from Matthew Hale, when when your business is so, quote, affected with a public interest or is so clothed in the public interest, then you necessarily cannot foreclose yourself uh, uh, to anyone based on kind of whims or on, on, on an arbitrary and capricious matter. And the way that this subsequently developed both in England and in, in the U.S. most relevant was that oftentimes there became something of a, a, of, of a quid pro quo, actually, where 
these private companies were regulated on some sort of non-discrimination basis in exchange for some sort of extra legal immunity provision. So the railroads are a good example. When common law in the in the U.S. in the late 19th century began to apply to the railroads as the, as the, as the robber barons kind of started to kind of proliferate and dominate large swaths of the American economy, they got certain extra legal uh, uh, immunity when it comes to tort law. They were basically kind of immunized from certain swaths of tort law in exchange for not being able to discriminate as to kind of the customers that they could take. Um, that's basically how it went. So the relevant point for for the big tech discussion and Phil Hamburger, who you know worked quite closely behind the scenes on HB twenty, the Texas law, he's made this point over and over again. I think I think conceptually he's completely right about this. What 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 Professor Hamburger says is that Section two thirty, the the you know the statutory subsection C extra legal immunity that is that is the carrot kind of c component of the common carrier formulation. So to kind of slap on a non discrimination provision would just be the natural thing to do where the immunity has already been provided. I mean, it, that quid pro quo basically has the quid. Now it's just time for the quo. Um, and and, and I, I don't, I'm not sure that Judge Oldham said it that explicitly in his opinion, but you know that's very much the point that he's getting at there. Another thing that I think is worth flagging from the Net Choice versus Paxson opinion, you know, at this point, you guys should just read the whole damn thing. We're talking about it so much. You should just, you should just read it for yourself. But one other thing that I want to flag is that uh, you know Andy goes out of his way to say that the, that the lower court, the district court, um, in in joining the 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 enforcement of HB twenty of this statute was really like one of the first times, maybe the first time in decades and decades that a court had enjoined enforcement of a non discrimination provision. I mean, think about the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four. I mean, like, what was what was the Civil Rights Act, if not kind of a non-discrimination provision on innkeepers, on restaurants, on lunch counters? It's the same conceptual framework. In the same way that invidious discrimination was obviously happening back then, state-sanctioned invidious discrimination was happening in the Jim Crow South. I, I'm not necessarily directly analogizing that to what's happening for conservatives and religious people and traditionalists nowadays when it comes to the tech platforms, but it, it's really not that far off, honestly. I mean, it is kind of state legitimized invidious discrimination. So um, Andy kind of goes out of his way to kind of say that as well. So um, that's what I want to make that point as well. So I'll, I'll be brief in my uh, concluding remarks. Uh, Josh before had referenced this whole special master appeal, and we don't know ultimately how all of this litigation is going to shake out, although my understanding is that essentially it looks like it's going to be pretty ironclad that the DOJ, which is really the intelligence community's perspective on this, their argument is going to win the day and prevail. If that is to be the case, one way to read it is that essentially the court is codifying the deep state as a fourth branch of government that is actually more powerful than the commander in chief himself, even though the commander in chief is really the one delegating his power to that intelligence com uh, community. And yeah, I think we've essentially been there de facto. Maybe we are there de jour as well, but certainly a decision like this will further cement that reality, uh, which you know should terrify, I think, Americans based upon what we know about our deep state. We know that they leak with impunity. We know that we hide behind uh, covering and you know, protecting sources, sources and methods, as in the case with Danchenko in order to cover up its own corruption and malfeasance. We know that it's willing to concoct a case of treason against the president and then a whole slew of other cases as well to treat contesting an election as essentially a 
uh, criminal, if not terrorist type of operation. So, you know, this special master decision uh, will ultimately resound in, in a way that is far greater than just the four corners of what the ultimate final controlling opinion is. I think that's disastrous for us. And one other point that I wanted to make is, you know, we have seen, and I've been hardened by the revelations coming from Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson in the Senate and Jim Jordan on the House side about these whistleblowers who are being patriots and speaking up, knowing full well that, for example, essentially, Attorney General Merrick Garland has put up a gag order. He issued a memo saying, you know, reiterating that DOJ officials are not to talk with the legislative branch. That has a chilling effect, of course. Uh, it's very pointed, as is the case of this a suspension of special agent friend. Uh, but I, what I would say is we've already seen the escalation of the rhetoric too. If you criticize that regime, you're a semi-fascist, uh, if not a jihadist, based upon some of the most odious rhetoric around 9-11, and they are acting accordingly. The reality of the actions is consistent with the demonic rhetoric that we saw at Independence Hall. And so conservatives, to the extent they are going to not just go through oversight, but actually use the power of the purse, and maybe actually craft some law, have something like a church committee and engage in real reforms, they better be ready for the onslaught that is already upon us of trying to cast anyone who dares call for those measures as a treasonous terrorist, semi-fascist, etc. Yeah, yeah, and kind of a theme that I was thinking about through all of these conversations is how, and especially after NatCon 2, is how we translate this into uh, progress or into action. And um, that's kind of a thread through all of these different conversations that we had. Um, and that's, you know, that's ultimately what matters. And it's been interesting to see, you know, Tom Cotton's bill that would tax university endowments to pay for um, to pay to pay for vocational skill training. Uh, that's like a great example. And there was an American conservative profile of American Compass uh, that came out this week that really, I think, did a great job of highlighting how the work that American Compass has quietly been plugging away at uh, for a couple of years now is translating into actual tangible bills that you can hold and you can put up for a vote in ways that will actually change and improve the daily lives of, of average Americans. Um, and so I, I think it's been really heartening. See that I taped a podcast today with Chris Bolivan of the Social Capital Camp Campaign. They put out a bunch of policy ideas, the ethics of public policy, uh, the ethic <laughs> <laughs> the Ethics and Public Policy put out a bunch of policy suggestions recently on family policy. They've put out suggestions recently um, on tech policy. Like this stuff is happening. Kevin Roberts at, at NatCon saying that we're part of your movement. Um, like you can expect to see stuff that's going to come out of Heritage. I think similarly, where it's like tangible translates into whatever office um, that has, you know, maybe the, a future Rachel Bovard uh, in it, who's who just, you know, such a nerd that all they want to do is uh, write bills and oh, whine about libs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. So, but, but really like, that's like these ideas, we have like factories, like little idea factories that are actually doing their jobs right now um, and are doing things in a good direction. That's not to say it's sustainable. That's not to say that it will matter uh, because if there's any complacency, it won't. Uh, but this is like really 
happening. You look at the Ron Paul gif. Uh, you can just insert that here. It's happening. Um, there are a lot of ideas coming out and they're being put into legislation and that's really what's going to matter at the end of the day. Um, and they're being not just legislation, but they're being challenged in court. Um, and that goes to the net choice decision. And, and the conservative movement is putting legal resources into fighting targeted fights uh, that go in a good direction. So uh, there's, there's some reason for hope as we enter this uh, fall of 2022. Well, on that uncharacteristically sunny and optimistic <laughs> yeah. note, on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Rachel, I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you at the next NatCon Swap.